my big brother in a fraternity. He was one of the one of the first employees uh, at SpaceX. Oh, wow. Um, back then, when Elon Musk pretty much just left PayPal yeah. and and found like SpaceX, right? Yeah. So you know, like back then, I didn't even know who uh, Elon Musk was, right? And my big <laughs> brother was like, "Yeah, you know, I just interviewed with Elon Musk. And he asked me about." If I dye my hair, you know, and um, <laughs> that was the first question that that Elon Musk asked him, right? And I'm like, who's yeah. Elon Musk? Hey, listeners, this is Alex, your host of EOA Entrepreneurs of Asia. After more than a decade of venture building, bootstrapping, scaling, and now investing in Southeast Asia, EOA is a show that interviews founders, investors, and entrepreneurs who can share their hard-earned lessons and stories for the benefit of the Asia ecosystem and beyond. Today's episode will be of interest for people who are early on in their entrepreneurship journey or for anyone interested getting into entrepreneurship. We profile Natapak's history and discover how he ended up launching his current recycling startup, Trash Lucky, where he is co-founder and CEO of. In this episode, we share insights about Bangkok communities, contrasting work experiences across Eastern and Western cultures, how Natapak pivoted from being an engineer at AMD to running a family business, then eventually launching tech startups across Southeast Asia from Thailand, Indonesia, and Philippines. This is not an episode where we dive hard into a specific topic, but gives you a more nuanced view into the experiences of a tech entrepreneur from the Asia region. Whether you are from the region or abroad, there's definitely something worth learning here. Let's dive in and listen. All right, Natapak, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. So today we have with us Natapak. Um, I'm going to mess up your last name, so you got to help me with the pronunciation. Atichatakan. 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 Okay. But yes. Okay, so I'll, I'll just give a brief uh, bullet point background so people kind of know who you are. Uh, you studied at USC back in 2001. Uh, you were a design engineer at AMD, the semiconductor company. After that, you worked at MinSen Machinery, uh, which is a Thai machinery company in the infrastructure space for various industries. Uh, you did an MBA at ANSIAD. Uh, after that, we worked together at Easy Taxi Thailand around 2014. And later on after Easy Taxi, you worked for Inspire Ventures doing a company called Delivery in a logistics space. Uh, then after that, you know, you took a break uh, and now you are, and you launched in 2019 Trash Lucky. Yep. Correct. Yep. Uh, so you were, were you born in Bangkok? Yes, I was. Born and raised uh, what, in Bangkok, Thailand. Which, which part of Bangkok? In Sukhumvit area. Ah, uh, Sukhumvit. Okay, right, right in the heart of it then, huh? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, uh, Levels Club is pretty famous. <laughs> so yeah. my house is literally like um, past level. So you, you keep okay. on going into the soy and then my house is there. Which soy number is that? Soy 11. But soy 11 was much different than, than before. Yeah, because I, I was living in soy 13, right? At the, the Rock Internet office, right? Uh, trendy building. Yeah, yeah, but uh, by by the time that you were here, I wasn't living there anymore. Yeah, we of course, moved. of course. Yeah, we but uh, yeah, so te- technically we're in the same neighborhood, but different time periods. Um, what was life uh, good growing up in that area, or what was it like? Yeah, it was fine. Like, I mean, it wasn't again like when I was little. It was more like a you know just another neighborhood. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think it was until I don't think it was until I was probably in college. When it became kind of like uh, night, the center of nightlife. Um, actually, maybe when I was in high school, that was when like the nightlife there, like you know, uh, 
theme starts happening in that soy. Yeah, well, I, my understanding was that a lot of Indian entrepreneurs actually invested in Soy 11, right? So they own a lot of the property in there. What you're saying is uh, from back in the day, Bangkok was a much quieter kind of town uh, than it is now? Or what, what, what is the biggest change that you've kind of seen? If we talk yeah. about the city overall, there are changes. Uh, like, you know, like over the past 30, 40 years, of course, like, you know, if you compare to the city of Jakarta, we have both subway and sky trains. So mass transit is it's getting better um, slowly, but, but you know, uh, better than other cities in Southeast Asia. But we still have the same problem of uh, air pollution, traffic, flooding, those are always there. And I'm not sure like what people will do about it. and also trash. That's interesting. So you actually think that infrastructure is something that's actually developing and getting better. Um, I feel like in Malaysia, I think that's maybe true in Vietnam, but I think locals will be a little bit more uh, apprehensive about that. They still feel slow. Um, but, you know, every time I go back to Vietnam, the changes are very rapid. Malaysia feels, well, actually, no, that's that's not fair to say that nothing has changed. Recently, there's been a monorail, they call it the MRT, right? The Mass Rapid Transit, which has been put in place. But I guess, you know, if you're more in the rural areas or if you're, you know, someone who doesn't have your own car, it, there there are changes happening. Um, I guess it's just harder to see when you're in the thick of it, right? Yeah. Do you feel that um, when when you're growing up to now, was there a sense of community uh, in your your neighborhood, is that still kind of thing? And has it be has, has like a lot of the, the the communities in the city kind of lost that aspect, or was it never really there? Do you think? I don't think it was uh, ever there. Um, it's just like very similar to any big city in the world, right? Like mm-hmm. um, you don't really you don't really interact much with uh, the guys next door, your neighbor next door. Um, yeah. You're kind of just you know in your own bubble of your home, your own family. Um, and that's probably much different than uh, than if you're in the in the suburb. Now, now um, the ex- the exception in, in the city is probably like like a local, crowded kind of like a deprived community um, where mm. uh, the sense of community is is stronger because you um, there are like two thousand something of these communities uh, within Bangkok, and yeah. each of these communities will have like their Community leader, uh, vice leader, etc. Um, they would have uh, volunteers for like um, different different aspects. So one of them would be, for example, healthcare, um, and those are mm. the people that uh, kind of doing like the uh, COVID check for people in the community and reporting to the government. You know, the case of spreading in their community and whatnot. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. You know, I, th- I would feel like big cities, depending on where you are. So I can't speak to every city around the world, but like um, New York a long time ago, you know, if you're in the boroughs, I think they had stronger sense of community. Maybe, I don't know about Manhattan, but I feel like there are there are pockets of community that exist where you would know your neighborhood and your people. Uh, maybe that does change over time, you know, as more foreign people move into the city or more rural people move in and then kind of dilutes over time. Uh, but I guess what you're seeing now, especially with your current work with Trash Lucky, I guess you have to engage in more communities. Uh, is this something you kind of discovered or you always knew about? I actually have to learn about this um, mm. as, as you know, my journey um, in Trash Lucky like, progress, right? Like, yeah. it's, I mean, like I knew that there were like community leaders. Um, I knew that they were like, you know, uh, low-income communities across Bangkok, and you know they face like uh, 
yeah. many challenges in their community, um, education, environment, uh, so on and so forth. And and I know that you know they have like uh, uh, community leaders and whatnot, but I never really like okay. experienced. So yeah, like um, I mean, I, I when I was little, I I knew that there were there were pockets of various communities uh, across Bangkok. And I know that there's mm-hmm. like, you know, um, could be leaders, but I've never, I've, uh, I never actually went in and like talked to these uh, community leaders, right? But um, yeah. uh, Trash Lucky, because we deal with uh, recyclables and virtually everybody has trash. And um, yeah. the deprived community suffers, usually suffers most from like the waste problem, right? Like there's not uh, yeah. proper management and People are probably not that incentivized to um, sort through recyclables, so we thought that it's like would be like a good segment for us to um, tackle. And yeah. during that journey, that's when I actually uh, had to learn more about um, the structure of the community and how uh, how they work with local MPs as well, uh, member of parliament. Oh, that's fascinating. So actually, politicians are, are actually, actually, it kind of makes a lot of sense, right? If you're trying to get voted into parliament and, and represent a sect of people, you have to know about, who, you know, who the community structure, who has influence where, and, and really getting to know them. And I guess, you know, when you're living in a city in the thick of it, you really kind of don't think about these things, or you don't really try to engage in a community. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, in, in every Bangkok district, um, you're guaranteed to have these kind of communities. So for the uh, politicians, instead of knocking, you know, like door to door in a single detached home, um, they might as well just go into this condensed community. um, And then all of a sudden, right, they reach their community leaders and um, convince them and, you know, get their buy-in. Then all of a sudden you have like 100, 200, 300, 500 votes. Yeah, people actually know about it through through this one uh, leader. And I guess that kind of makes sense. You know, if, if anyone who's focused on building startups where community is kind of central, it's, it's a very good information to know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. So, after Bangkok, you ended up going to the University of Southern California. How, how did you end up making that jump? I actually went to high school in uh, East Coast. Um, boarding school in oh, Pennsylvania okay. is actually a Quaker school. Uh, so, Quaker is like a religion that's... You know, like Quaker Oats, basically. People probably all in Quaker Oats. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but but Quaker is more like uh, more more than just Oats. <laughs> um, it's a religion <laughs> that promotes like equality, diversity, and also like um, nonviolence. So that's that's uh, I yeah. think that's uh, the characteristic of this religion. So so anyway, so I was in East Coast, and then you know, like me being from Thailand. Um, I'm not used to the cold, so I wanted, I want to move somewhere mm. that's warmer. Um, yeah. And also, uh, I I want to learn how to surf, so I figured, <laughs> you know, LA would be will be the best place to go to college. Um, yeah. So I applied to school in, in in LA. I actually didn't. I actually didn't uh, um, started at. I didn't. I didn't start at USC. Actually, I I went to Occidental first. It's like a small liberal oh, arts okay. college in yeah. um, Eagle Rock, Glendale kind of area. Obama went there for a couple of years. Oh, okay, nice. Yeah, so I went there for for a couple of years, and then I transferred to USC because um, uh, 
I I wanted to get an engineering degree, but the liberal arts college only have physics, kind of uh, the general studies rather than like, you know, specific professional degree, I guess. I don't know if that's the right yeah. judgment, but, you know. <laughs> well, you were younger back then, right? So. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Uh, so what, what coast is better, East Coast or West Coast? So I really miss California. Um, just like the diversity of people, the food, the uh, uh, culture, uh, being close to the beach as well. Yeah. Uh, so, so speaking of surfing, where where is the best uh, way? Where's the best surfing you've done around the world? I would have to say Bali. It's just like the diversity of waves and the consistency. You can actually just surf year round there, and you have all kind of waves for your your level of surfing, right? From the very beginner to professional. What you know when you moved from Bangkok to America was the American experience jarring in any way, or was there anything that kind of shocked you? Oh, was I, I think I was only fourteen when I first moved there. Um, yeah, very young. I was thinking, what's the difference between uh, realize and recognize? I remember that, like thinking, like they're the same <laughs> word, they're the same thing, and I couldn't figure out like why, why, yeah. they had, why they're two different words. You know, those that was kind of like uh, how much English I knew back then. Um, mm-hmm. But of course, you know, like I was, uh, I don't know, lucky or unlucky, but it worked out pretty well that I, when I went there, I was basically the only uh, Thai. Um, so pretty much I was just like thrown right into a culture where I need to speak English because um, yeah. I didn't have anybody to speak Thai with. Yeah. Um, and if I don't speak to anyone, I wouldn't have any friends. So it forced me to... Uh, to learn the language so so i guess it worked out so overall a positive experience then yeah 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 um yeah. boarding school was fun you're you're kind of like being with your friends all the time and you know you of course like you you do all these mischievous things you know like <laughs> um like uh hiking out um after after your your supposedly you know bedtime uh would you send your kids to boarding school as well or no um yeah maybe uh, yeah Maybe yeah, I'm not I'm not uh, opposed to that. Okay, so uh, yeah, because I you know the stories you always hear is that every time you send kids to, I guess it depends on what kind of private school. You know, they could end up being, you know, exposed to some crazy stuff rarely at a young age, or you know, you hang out with the wrong crowd and they end up doing like, I don't know, stuff that they should be doing at a young age. But um, it seems like uh, you you had a good crowd then. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, mm. like being at boarding school doesn't always expose you to like bad stuff, right? Yeah, <laughs> like. If you get in trouble, um, and and it's not always that um, trouble kids go to boarding school, right? True. It, it also depends, like you know, where you go, like like what you say, and it also depends, you know, like how how the school is, what kind of culture they teach, and yeah. um, and I think one reason why my parents picked this school was because uh, Quakerism is kind of similar to like Buddhism in oh, a way that it. It's like nonviolence, that aspect, equality, mm, you know. True. You kind of yeah. like just do whatever you you think like it's best for you as long as you don't harm anybody, right? Like mm-hmm. they coordinate things like God is in every everyone, right? Uh, so yeah. that's like equality, you know. So. Mm-hmm. So you end up going to Occidental College and then later USC, University of Southern California, and you said you wanted to study engineering. Um, what were you thinking back then? Like, why, why engineering? Well, because I have Asian parents, I guess. It's, it's either doctor, engineers, or lawyers, right? 
so then you did you did you end up enjoying the degree? A what? Yeah, yeah, I definitely did. I I I actually wanted to be a guitarist, like a classical guitarist. Wow. Okay. Um, was that from exposure to the American culture, or was that from Thailand times? No, that was from Thailand. Um, that was from Thailand, and I think that was one of the reasons why my parents shipped me off, because uh, I told them that I want to quit <laughs> school and become a guitarist. So they were like, "All right, we could, this is trouble. We need to get him away from this uh, guitar teacher." Uh, you would have thought that the American experience would have probably brought out the desire even more, but it seems that uh, you ended up falling in line and you went and did your engineering degree. I guess I didn't find like a guitar teacher that inspired me as much as the one that I had in Bangkok. Um, okay, I see. So you get caught up with socializing with your friends and then play sports, right? So like boarding school, you get, yeah. you gotta like uh, do chores as well. So um, your life gets pretty busy, right? So it's like you have like the full schedule kind of planned out for you. Um, yeah. And of course, if you play music, you can you can still you know have time to practice. It's not that you don't have all the time, but uh, like I say, uh, because of that. Um, very structured, and in a small town, you don't have that kind of access to various teachers. Unlike you know, being in a city, you have much more resource and much mm. more options, many more options for the teachers, right? So, yeah, I mean that definitely speaks to um, the power of having good teachers and mentors and how they could influence. Um, and you know, when you change that context, things can change drastically. And it also speaks to the power of routine, right? So as soon as you're locked in the routine and the people who, who you hang out with, it could change your trajectory completely different, right? Yeah, really. Who knows? You know, like uh, who would have known? <laughs> you could have been a famous guitarist instead, right? I know, seriously. And now I'm just picking up trash. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, what was your expectation of at that point of your life, right? So you do your engineering degree. Um, how, how were you thinking about the world then? And what were you expecting once you graduated? I mean, I was just, I was just thinking about getting a engineering job somewhere in the U.S. I was actually a combined major of um, biomedical and electrical engineering, thinking that it would wow. give me an edge uh, to be in like a biomedical uh, field. Uh, you yeah. know, because then you kind of have the best of the uh, the best of both worlds. Um, if you, especially if I wanted to go into like medical devices, but yeah. um, but it actually it actually kind of hurt me um, because yeah, when I applied for jobs right after undergrad, they were like, "Well, you didn't take uh, these other classes compared to like CS major because we need someone who can code the software mm. that would drive the hardware." And, yeah. oh, well, since you're a combined major, you didn't take these other classes that we need uh, you to design an analog device for these medical devices, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. So it's kind of like you're, you're kind of a jack of all trades, but king of none, something like that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Entry-level jobs, you engineer, basically um, supposed to do one small task in this big organization well, right? You're not supposed to be kind of like a generalist. So I couldn't find a job within like the summertime and my parents were, you know, like being Asian again, um, <laughs> yeah. pushing me to get a master degree. Actually, they wanted me to continue on to get a PhD degree. Wow. Um, but I was like, look, you know, just, just, um, <laughs> let's just go step by step. If I don't get a job within the summer, 
I promise I will pursue like a master degree. Uh, so, so that's how I end up getting a master degree um, in electrical engineering because I realized like, oh shit, you know, like I didn't <laughs> specialize in anything. Yeah. And and then I reflect uh, back to like the class that I like, and I actually like it. Um, like the kind of electrical engineering and dealing with computer aspect of it. So I mm. ended up uh, majoring in VLSI, which is basically integrated circuits. So you would design microprocessor. Um, yeah. And later, that's how I got a job at uh, AMD. So my my goal then was just like, okay, um, if I want to be an engineer, how do I get into the mecca of engineering? which is Silicon Valley, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, yeah, correct. How do yeah. I, how do I lie myself? So I work there. Right. And that was yeah. my goal. Um, yeah. And yeah. And, and, uh, and I, I eventually, uh, um, ended up there working with four AMD. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's also kind of crazy because if you had done your, the degree that you did with, you know, bio plus engineering, uh, it say say you're just graduating in the current market today. You know, I, w- I would argue with the amount of you know interest in tech and the amount of money flowing into it, and the amount of exposure entrepreneurship gets in the younger generation and even in schools, right? Um, you might have been set up to be a perfect generalist just to go straight and maybe do something in entrepreneurship in that field instead, right? Could be, could be. But you know, like at that time, I would say it was. Uh, I was pretty naive i didn't you know like um, uh know much about like what i want to do all i knew which is like um uh you know like if i look back right like the re i remember yeah. like thinking uh do i want to be a hardware or software engineer and interesting i was so naive that like oh i don't want to be a software engineer because i don't want to stare at the computer screen all day and code all day but <laughs> that's exactly what you do with a hardware engineer anyway yeah and yeah, nowadays, yeah, yeah. you don't even have to be you know, to scare the screen all day. So yeah. So I think if I could have turned back time, I would have, I would have uh, read a lot more uh, books and you know like um, current news and like what's going on in the tech world, who's moving, mm. uh, who are like the entrepreneurs that are moving and shaking things. My big brother in a fraternity, he was one of the. One of the first employees uh, at SpaceX oh, wow. um, back then when Elon Musk pretty much just left PayPal or, yeah, like, yeah. And, and found, like, SpaceX, right? Yeah. So, you know, like, back then I didn't even know who uh, Elon Musk was, right? And my big <laughs> brother was like, yeah, you know, I just interviewed with Elon Musk. He asked me about if I dye my hair, you know? And, um, <laughs> That was the first question that, that Elon Musk asked him, right? And I'm like, who's yeah. Elon Musk? So, you know, that's how naive I was. But, you know, like, I was young. We were people. Were, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that like, you know, turns out to be your, in terms of your environment, who you hang out with and how other people are thinking. I mean, you were young as well. I think every young person thinks like that. You know, I, I've probably made some very silly decisions like that, too, about one, like, like picking college. You know, I just wanted to be in the city. I needed to escape the suburbs, right? And, you know, it just limits my choices when I could have picked yeah. anywhere around the globe. Um, it, but I mean, that's, you know, it's really an interesting point. Like your life could have been different had you gone to meet Elon Musk or someone else too, right? So 
Um, it's just yeah. crazy that, you know, yeah. all, all your peers, you know, and the trajectories just depends on one simple coincidental meeting, which could sometimes be luck or just, you know, right timing. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, you didn't land too bad. You, you were in Silicon Valley, right? And you got, you actually did get a job in AMD back then. Um, was it as prestigious back then as it is now? Yeah, like uh, when I joined AMD, AMD was kicking ass. Like they were, yeah. um, they were beating Intel to the uh, the dual core. So back then, right, it was like, oh, okay, um, oh, interesting, single core to dual core, and AMD, AMD like leapfrog Intel, and the stock price shot up from four four dollar to forty dollar within like a year or two. I don't remember. And yeah. then, uh, and and then after I joined. Um, the, the next four years after I joined AMD ended up like making series of missteps and ended mm. up getting leapfrogged by uh, Intel, Intel like multiple times. Yeah. And then the stock went back to $4 when I left. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah that, I mean, that was such an interesting time back then. Um, and, and we you know this, it's, I think I like this part of your experience because we always hear about, you know, modern tech companies and software and SaaS and, you know, uh, just the, um, you know, unbundling of mobile. Uh, but like essentially the Silicon Valley was built off the backs of semiconductors, right? The first VCs were investing in companies like AMD and I mean, Sequoia, right? They, they kind of were born out of that, uh, you know, selling from semiconductors and so forth. Um, and it's, it's not as hot and sexy as it is today to do semiconductors, but I feel like we're entering a new cycle where uh, this, you know, the latest kind of processes are, are, you know, taking things to the next level. And it's, it's, you know, we're seeing the resurgence of AMD, right? So when you left, it was back down to $4. Um, but, you know, there's this huge 10, 10 year period of where it's like a lull, right? Like, like you said, I don't know what the missteps were, but uh, Intel just kept, you know, getting bigger and bigger. But now AMD is finally leapfrogging um, Intel again. And then you saw the stock currently now is like, what, I got a hundred, right? So it's like three X uh, from the time you were at AMD, um, you know, from the from the peak of forty dollars to to over a hundred dollars now, right? And um, you know, Intel also yeah. is rising, but but I think it's it's become like this kind of market share game. Um, so it almost sounds like a dream job uh, these days to be an AMD, right? Yeah, I think I think you know, like no one no one could have foresaw the, uh, that time yeah. period, right? And at that at that time period, a lot of people of AMD were leaving to other hardware startups as well, and also Apple. Apple were recruiting yeah. people like uh, heavily ah, because it was when okay. like they were coming out with iPhones, right? Like that's that's like the first yeah. generation iPhone. So um, mm -hmm. even like I think after after a year or two at AMD, uh, I was recruited to go to Apple. But you know, oh. like I again, I was I was too naive, and I was like, ah, I'm <laughs> I'm I'm happy here. Why would I Why would I uh, change up, right? So you know. Uh, not a pack. You could have been a crazy millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> so back then, uh, what was the culture of AMD like? When I first went there, I think it was like the one of the glory times of AMD, right? Because yeah. like they were up on top, and you know, like I think with with Intel and AMD, it's kind of like went into cycle, right? Like whoever, yeah, whoever comes up with the best semiconductor in terms of speed, in terms of power saving, in terms of performance, will win like the market, right? Correct. Because um, then they get to set the price as well because they just yeah. have like a better technology that the other guys cannot compete uh, against. When I was there uh, at the beginning, uh, we had like team outings, not 
not like crazy outings that you would see at I don't know um, nowadays in in many tech companies. Nothing like a WeWork, <laughs> you know, <laughs> compare. <laughs> um, yeah. But I've I've learned a lot from like those early days, just working with like the brightest engineers there. You know, like um, it taught me a lot about just figure it out. Like whatever you don't know, just figure it out. Because no. what we were doing back then, like no one had done it before. Like yeah. the world didn't have dual core microprocessor. The world didn't have a quad core processor. Nobody knows how to yeah. do it. You just have <laughs> to go figure out and do it. Um, I remember we were kind of paired up with like. Uh, so like the new the new grads right would be paired up with like a team leader yeah. or something like that. When I was stuck on uh, some problem, I would go to team leader and ask like, "Hey, for help, how do you do this?" And you know, like first couple times, it it only took like you know maybe two or three times for me to realize actually like he doesn't know it either. Like what he does <laughs> is he would just go and and read up about on like the internal kind of uh, documents. Right. So basically, the process was like, um, think about where you can where you can find information of similar problems, so you can research and and adapt to solve your current problem. Right. So I was watching yeah. that, literally sitting right next to him, looking at his computer screen, doing that. So I was like, yeah. oh my god, actually, you know, like it's all about analytical analytical thinking and all about taking the initiative to solve the problem. Yeah. Not just like, hey, um, I don't know how to do this. Let's go ask. Uh, for someone more experienced or someone more seniors, thinking that they have the solution in hand already, and of course, like sometimes they do, right? But like many times, yeah, course, like yeah. I say, like they actually don't, but they know how yeah. to solve the problem, and that's like the critical thinking they learn from like silicon, working at MD in the Silicon Valley. I mean, that's that's an amazing anecdote, right? It, it there's kind of two things I kind of hear from that. The first one is. You're literally watching the process of what drives Moore's law, right? Which is the transistors on a chip doubles every two years. And the process is that no one knows, right? So uh, essentially what they're doing is just building yeah. on the shoulders of each other looking backwards, being analytical. And it's like, how do we fit more transistors on this? And um, it's insane to see the more the results of the Moore's laws in, in process. Like just the compute power just gets insanely bigger every single year and what we can do with that and how that manifests into the real world. Um, it's crazy. And, and, you know, you're part of that. Uh, and I think that's amazing. Um, th- I guess the second thing is, you know, I guess, is that the most critical thing you learned from AMD? You definitely, that's, that's definitely like, yeah. Um, one of the, one of the most important lessons uh, that I learned from there, yeah. just like, you know, yeah. don't think that you don't have ability to solve problems just because you've never done it before. Just, yeah. you know, go find, do some research, go find information, take that initiative, um, take different approach and try it. And then eventually you'll, you'll figure it out. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like almost the ethos of, but it seems like, you know, that that's what you described was this whole kind of engine that what makes Silicon Valley work really well. Yeah. Ask the right question. Think of, you know, take the right approach yeah. and um, break problem down into smaller pieces and, and build it back up yeah. to do something big. And the reason why I kind of asked that or point that out is because if you really think about the power of what Google and the information is brought is that as long as you're good enough at searching for the right information, which is literally at everyone's fingertips, then you have enough pieces to kind of be analytical and build almost anything that you need these days, right? Yeah, exactly. Now it's like um, easier to learn on your own than ever because there's so much resources out there. You know, back then you got to go find the right textbook. Right. And 
and like yeah. you know you you can't just control f like keyword you know so <laughs> yeah you yeah. gotta get like a go like asset librarian uh b you know hopefully you're uh you're in luck that the librarian points you to the right book look at appendix whatever um and then you know read probably like five books of that appendix uh, and then hopefully you'll you'll find what you need but now you just just search something you don't know like what is DeFi on youtube and someone would explain yeah. that to you in two minutes yeah exactly um so i guess my last question then for about amd is uh so you were at the you know one of their peaks you know they were they were they were you know taking over intel um what kind of happened that where they lost that uh and then there was this big lull period and then um what what changed it so that they actually got out of that rut because i think that's kind of an interesting story the industry was back then was moving from single core um yeah a single core processor basically just think about like one brain okay like uh one brain um of computer on one chip to two yeah. brain on one chip to four brains on one chip to eight brains on one chip mm-hmm. so whoever can launch the dual core first whoever can launch a quad core first will win the market mm. and uh it's not only about the design but it's also about the manufacturing of it right because okay. once you lay out the circuit you actually need a lot of testing um of manufacturing the semiconductors when you add another brain onto the chip you have to shrink everything down so yeah. that means the manufacturing capability or technology also need to take a leapfrog need to advance how do you shrink down a wire right like a nano wire uh, a microcircuit to even smaller you know than than what you have before yeah um that's not very that's not very easy because all those things didn't come together for md um for a series of time so then we kind of like uh fell behind um kind of two two to three steps right because yeah uh, if we if if intel and amd keep on leapfrogging each other then that yeah. means you know you it's kind of back and forth right but if mm-hmm. you if you fall behind and you don't leapfrog them back they just keep on like uh leapfrogging way ahead of you, yeah right yeah exactly um so that's basically what happened and then uh later on the industry was moving toward a, a fusion ship basically a gpu graphics card you know a company like nvidia ati yeah. ati got absorbed Correct. by amd um yeah. so basically fuse the two things together like graphics card and the cpu right um yeah gpu um what they call uh so so yeah that was that was when when i was leaving now I I haven't followed um uh the last kind of like 5 6 years like ever since I left AMD I kind of like um didn't keep in touch uh so much with the semiconductor mm. so I won't yeah. be able to speak as to how they they're able to uh to uh got back on track but I know that the the current um CEO uh, I forgot her name um has done an incredible job Lisa to, Sue yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think exactly that I'm not sure I, th- I think what you're saying is exactly correct is that um she must have fixed the in- innovation cycle. It's it's crazy to think that a few missteps, uh, mismanagement of supply chain or getting the wrong component of technology wrong in this space causes like a decade cycle uh which is so dangerous, right? You know, then you kind of lose your step and it, yeah. it took that much time and the right person to kind of change the culture and innovation cycle get back on track where they're kind of leaping frog back, you know, 
crazy bounds now. And Intel looks like the one that they're going to get left behind now. Sorry, just one last point. Uh, marketing also play like a key factor there too. Because mm, uh, like back, uh, back when I was there, AMD really focused on the server segment of, of the market. Ah, okay. Right? okay. But then once the BlackBerry comes out, the handheld, like very like small chip, starting to take over the market as well. Not just yeah. the um, not just a microprocessor for uh, server, laptop, desktop, right? But now like yeah. arms, the arm technology, right? That uh, what SoftBank like bought, um, mm. I don't know how many years ago, right? So yeah. that was when like the handheld uh, chip, um, very mobile chip, it started taking over the semiconductor uh market trend as well right like a company yeah. like um qualcomm um and also apple like later uh which follows you know like the kind of that handheld trend right like um yeah. with iphone and amd was kind of left out of that that uh handheld devices and i think i don't know uh mm. I, I again i didn't follow i didn't follow the the recent uh past five six years but i think but I think the that combination of GPU uh, or graphics card and uh, CPU gave the chip, um, the semiconductor, much more power to run like server for Bitcoin, something like that. Maybe they read the yeah. market well and Correct. got back on track with that. I don't know. I, I mean, because I, 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 because I was building PCs, I, I know a little bit from the consumer side, and primarily the biggest jump in leapfrog was CPU. Um, they. They've figured out a, a way to do, you know, just crazy multi-core, much better than um, the, the like the thread counts on on the CPU, which just allows them to do more compute power. I guess I'm not sure the exact technical aspects of thread threading, right? But they they, they can do more threads than Intel, um, and they they've managed to keep up with the core counts. And but I think the dominance is just taking over in terms of CPU uh, graphics cards. They haven't taken over, but they have very comparable products, so they they can get market share there. And now I think because of their CPUs, now they're starting to take onto the mobile market share, which, you know, where they lost out for the past decade, they're catching up now. Um, so, you know, I think it's looking like a bright future and uh, Intel just wasn't able to keep up with their, their innovation cycle, essentially. At least that's my take from the consumer side. So like the, I built my last computer with an AMD processor and not an Intel processor, you know, given value bank for buck, right? You know, if I want more processing for lower costs, AMD made way more sense. Um, so, I mean, yeah, that's maybe just an insight nice. from the consumer side. Yeah. Cool. My boss would be very disappointed if I can't speak about AMD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then uh, why, why did you want to leave then? Uh, and then you left Silicon Valley even, right? So what, what happened? I wanted to shift to business. I guess, mm -hmm. you know, I come from a, a business family. So yeah. my grandpa is a Chinese immigrant moving to Thailand, uh, escaping the civil war in China. So he escaped to Thailand and then he formed like um, a business of trading uh, machineries. So he saw like the, the market that he saw the shift in mechanization uh, from farmers using water buffaloes to plow the field <laughs> to amazing. a small single engine um, yeah. to plow the field, right? Yeah. So, uh, basically like a, in Thai they call Kwai, like, which is like a metal, a literal translation is like metal water buffalo, but basically like, you know, like a, okay. a robot buffalo, yeah. basically like engine, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So because of that, 
foresight, he was able to become like the exclusive distributor for Kubota. Mm. And basically, that was like the glory days of, of the family business as well, because you'll basically just have, yeah. like, you know, um, the, the whole market, this brand new market, the, the shift in mechanization for Thailand. Yeah, um, but you know, of course, like being just a distributor um, doesn't last uh, doesn't last long because the brand owner eventually would come in and take the market uh, away from you. So that's kind of like what mm-hmm. happened um, to the family business. But but regardless, um, my grandpa has always been like the patriarch of the family and yeah. always been like an inspiration, right? Like this guy who uh, escaped. Um, the civil war. China came to Thailand on a basically fresh on the boat, right? If it will be, yeah, um, yeah, with really nothing. And I remember him telling me about like the first time he got to Thailand and saw ice. He didn't understand why it was cold <laughs> because steam was coming up, right? Because he's like, yeah, associate steam with with hot tea. You know, like why is this? Um, it's giving up steam, but it's cold, right? Yeah. Um, so that's how fresh a boat he was. But you know, end up being able to uh, build like a a big business that still lasts to today. It's uh, I think no, almost seventy years now, sixty five years something like that. Um, so that has always been an inspiration. After working as an engineer for four something years, I kind of could see like my whole life already, right? Like, okay, yeah, I'm gonna yeah. be moving from entry level engineer to you know like a junior engineer to senior engineer to project leader to team leader to whatever mm. right um, yeah. if you go on the technical track or if eventually you you can move to like the marketing side uh, of things then maybe you uh then you you switch track i don't know right but but it's mm-hmm. pretty i don't know like a like a standard routine and yeah. um, I kind of want to shift more into business and try out the entrepreneur side of things, um, mm-hmm. you know, like based on the inspiration that that I had for my grandpa. So that's why I decided to leave uh, AMD in an engineering job and um, went to work for family business for a couple of years, uh, Vincent Machineries in Thailand. I think what you did was really amazing because you had an opportunity to kind of you know, get the training wheels and do business. Um, why, why choose your family business versus you, especially coming from Silicon Valley? Why weren't you gung ho and tried to start your own business then? Well, a because I felt like uh, I need to um, recompense. Is that the right word? Like give back mm-hmm. to the family business okay. uh, at some point yeah. in my life. Because you know, like without that company uh ge- able to generate income for the family i would i probably wouldn't have the opportunity to go study in the us you know and mm, um having the life that i that i did when i was young and able to eventually get an engineering job there um yeah. so it has always been in the back of my mind that like uh, uh at some point in my life i should um go work for the family business uh, at the very yeah. least I will become a much more well-informed shareholder uh, in the future. Yeah, true, right? true. That uh, makes sense. So, so that's what I did. I mean, with, with that kind of experience, is there any way for this kind of business model 
uh, especially knowing what you know now as a seasoned entrepreneur, uh, building companies for quite quite many years now, and also working family business, working in big corporate. Um, is there any way for this business type of you know, family business, especially in distribution, that they could innovate with technology and um, you know somehow escape that problem with you know the the, the brand owners coming in um, and then keep growing the business? Yeah, I I definitely think so. The most difficult part is um, dealing with essentially the family and the shareholder themselves, right? Because uh, okay, the typical um, problem family business. The thing about yeah. Exactly. The thing about family business, uh, many family business, or I would say maybe most family business, when it gets passed on from generation to generation, um, yeah. the shares get gets divided up like either mm-hmm. equally, or yeah. no one essentially has like the majority uh, is yeah. is a majority shareholder. So then you know like it's very very difficult to get an agreement. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times people can't, or, or let's just say, let's not say can't. Uh, a lot of times <laughs> people may not be good at wearing different hats between being a family member, being a shareholder, being a board of directors, or being a working, uh, being a staff, let's just say that, right? Yeah. So that adds another complexity um, to, to the equation. So you can't, uh, if you can't, um, uh hack that right structure um that separate kind of like um you know family from shareholder to working team uh then it's very hard to move to get everyone together and move in the right direction right yeah correct yeah and i think the one 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 structure that i saw that worked really well is that where there's only one heir and then he controls all the power and it's his job to make sure everyone else has a good life. But at the same time, you know, if there's a lot of people to split amongst, you know, then it also causes a lot of friction and it gets very messy. Um, so yeah, it's definitely a very big challenge, I think, uh, which, you know, I think we're still seeing a lot of these family businesses kind of go through this transition today. Yeah. But yeah, like I, I, I agree that, you know, like um, there are definitely a lot of these, a lot of opportunity for traditional family business to, to innovate. Uh, I think, yeah. The challenge is how to how to rally everyone together um, uh, when you're not the patriarch, right? Because everyone was so used yeah. to listening to patriarch, mm. patriarch say my way or highway, and he has the right to do so <laughs> because he actually built that company. Um, yeah, and, and now you know, like how how do how do people in my generation convince people in the previous generation, which is the, you know the my my grandpa's kids right like to do yeah. to do things when they say well you know you i i actually grew up with that company when your grandpa built it like yeah you know, i know what he wants and mm. you don't know what he wants you know things like I that. i see what you mean yeah 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 which is interesting though because you um worked there for quite a few years and then you even rose to the rank as the president um i mean i'm, I'm assuming you're successful otherwise you would have reached to the president level uh, and, and even still, that's not enough moral authority to to take control uh, across the family then, huh? To be a success, uh, successful family business, you really have, uh, you your family members really have to uh, play or respect the role mm. and the structure, right? So like, true, true. Um, let's say like uh, for me, even being like a, having that present title, but... For my people in my parents' generation, um, they would 
they if they could just go to my uh, employees and say like, well, you know, I'm I'm the <laughs> kid of my grandpa, and this is more <laughs> of our company than my my niece or nephew company. <laughs> yeah, you know, then they can give a direct order uh, to people and kind of let's just say like over overturn the decision that um, people of my generation makes. Right, that's that's like a common problem of of family business, right? It, it sounds like a, a Korean drama, man. Well, I had I had six aunties at my boss. So that's fair, fair I, enough. Yeah. <laughs> So is is that what drove you to business school? Did you were you thinking about trying to solve this, or you thought you weren't equipped enough, or why 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 go to business school? You went to INSEAD in two thousand thirteen. Yeah, so uh, I went I went to INSEAD because I I felt like um, I was in uh, I I lacked like another business education because um, mm-hmm. you know like I was. I was an engineer. Engineer, you know, like my whole career uh, before yeah. Minsen, right? Um, yeah. And I remember, like, I we went. I went to attend kind of a dealership meeting. Um, so one of the companies that we distribute their product mm-hmm. has put together kind of like a um, distribution uh, distributor meeting and targeting the the next generation of. Uh, the family business owner. And one of the questions that they asked was like, you know, what makes companies successful, right? What is the one thing that you think that makes a company successful? The one thing, okay? And the choices were technology, product marketing, and people, something like that, right? And of course, me, like um, coming from an engineering background, I'd say (laughs) technology, of course, right? Yeah. But then... uh, but then um, later on, it's like, oh my god, why did I pick technology? So it's such like engineering thing. It's the yeah, people, correct, correct. you know. And that's like, yeah. and and later on, before I went to Insia, of course, um, that's what I realized. Like from from uh, maybe like two, you know, a week or two later from from that meeting, I was like, yeah. oh my god, you know, like that's right. People is what makes a company successful. It's not the technology. It's people yeah. are the one who needs to drive innovation and technology. You can't motivate people. To do that, then you're not going to have a successful. You're not going to have like an innovative technology. Period. So that's kind of like one of the things that also made me realize that you know, um, going to like a a top business school would uh would probably help, right? Like, um, give me both like the hard skill of like accounting, finance, etc., and also like the soft skill of management, like you know, um organization behavior things like that so that's why i went to india yeah you know i feel like your story makes a lot of sense to me because i think a lot of people have very flimsy reasons why they want to go to business school but when i hear your story in your case you know like for for like traditional reasons if you're completely lacking something a very compact one year program kind of makes sense you know especially if you have like either a family business or if you want to go do business but you're from an engineering background or say you're pivoting your career completely so um, and to me it makes a lot of sense and i guess after the end of your education did you feel it was the right decision then Oh, definitely. Um, And also, I think I made the right decision to go to INSEAD and not like a U.S.-based school. Oh, how come? Um, Like after having spent, what was it? I think 15 years in the U.S., you know, you become basically Americanized, right? And and you think, you (laughs) know, uh, America is like the best in the world. 
And, you know, that's where uh, all the smart people are, like the rest of the world is stupid, you know? And that is not true. Yeah. And that and that's not true, you know? And 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 at yeah. INSEAD, it's really like the the business school uh, for the world where where not one nation represent more than I forgot, like twelve percent, somewhere between twelve to twenty percent. I don't remember the exact number. Yeah. So it's literally like very, very diverse uh, student body, and not not to say that the U.S. business school is not diverse. Top U.S. business school uh, are diverse as well. But you know, like in the U.S. culture, you would know that like you kind of have international school crowds and then the U.S. students, and they're of course they like interact some, but it's not like you know, like a, a very tight bond. But when you're, yeah. when you're at INSEAD, since you don't have that, um, uh, a majority nation, you end up having to bond, right? Uh, with um, people from so many nations. And then you realize, oh my God, like smart people are everywhere from every nation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you ended up uh, expanding your network like globally. Like yeah. after INSEAD, I think confidence can confidently say that like now if i go into any major city in the world i know someone that i have hung out with and travel with mm. you know like during the weekends at Vincent. yeah i think that's a pretty strong case where if you're doing it for very strong traditional reasons where uh, you know if you don't have that immediate skill set that kind of makes sense like your your case and i guess the other case that makes sense too is um, if you pick the right program, it can completely change your context. And I think people's behaviors and mindsets are often stuck. Like, yeah, like, like you said, if you just went to an American-based system, you probably wouldn't have changed much, but it's something that contrasts and it's very jarring. It kind of opens horizons. And I think sometimes people need that shock to go beyond it. And it sounds like another decent reason. Uh, cause typically coming from startups and, and, you know, doing things yourself, uh, most cases, you know, MBAs are not really necessary, and that's why I'm, I'm usually critical of them. But, uh, you know, I, I think in your case, they made a lot of sense. Let's just say this. I don't think I would have landed a job at Easy Taxi if if, if not for the NCA degree. I don't think Rocket would have been like, yes, let's hire like this semiconductor yeah, engineer to true. run Thailand. Well, that was like when Rocket was really ramping up and the reputation was still quite decent. And, uh, you know, Lazada's lore were doing well. Um Talent was hard to get, so they might have hired you. But I think it definitely um, that kind of MBA profile definitely puts a preference for for who they like to hire. So maybe you're right. Um, th- then how how did you actually get a, how did you get hired for Easy Taxi? How were you introduced? So I think I went to like some network event and mm-hmm. met with this guy named Sid, who uh, who is like um, uh, Thai Thai American. Uh, I guess so. Okay. He looks high, but he's you know kind of grew up in the U.S. and I came back in, uh, to Bangkok and work in a company that developed apps. And because of the that nature of work, um, developing apps, of course, he needs to be a little bit plugged in into the startup community. And yeah. he knew uh, Felipe, who was a country manager of uh, And then uh, Sid introduced me to Felipe. And that's how, like, mm-hmm. uh, the interview um, at EC Taxi started. And then Philippe uh, basically hired me in as the COO. And uh, b- back then, if people don't know, for, like, most people might not know Easy Taxi, but essentially it was the one of the largest ride-hailing taxi apps in the world back then, and especially in the region, too. Uh, we were competing against Grab and Uber. 
And for you then, how how bad was it competing with Grab and Uber back then? I think you you would also know <laughs> that we have a lot less um, funding than yeah. our competitors, right? Um, yeah. I, I actually met with Anthony Tan uh, uh, afterward, and oh, yeah? I told him because he asked me like, "Hey, how how was it? You know, like uh, competing?" I was like, "Are you kidding me? You know, you know what I feel like? I, I feel like, you know, I'm <laughs> um, I'm like." fighting grab like bare fists uh and naked when the grab has like machine guns and tanks <laughs> you know that's how like yeah. underfunded we were and he just laughed right um because back in the days right like we were we, yeah we were in 71 countries 170 something cities and yep. uh then grab had um what only five countries three three to five yep. countries back then so yep. they and i think we, we raised Exactly. We raised probably like similar amount of money. Um, but if you divide it all up, right, we have, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I remember calculating once and I think like 40 times less funding Correct. in Thailand, in yes. Bangkok, in Grab, something like that. So, yeah. you know, um, when the war was like all about uh, subsidy and discount, bonus the driver, discount uh, for the passenger to get transaction. There's, yeah. it's very hard to compete with uh, someone with a big, very big wallet. Yeah, I mean, at least you got to speak to Anthony. He, till this day, he refused to to add me on LinkedIn, but I just gave up. I don't care at this point. Uh, it was very bitter in Vietnam. I know. Um, you know, we like had spies and copying mechanics and campaigns. It was just, it was completely cutthroat. And with Uber coming in, it was just worse because their product was way superior. So like their product just did all the heavy lifting. And of course, they had the sexy branding from US and of course, way more funding than anyone else. Um, yeah, for, it was just a slaughter, right? Yeah. Um, so by the end of the day, I think it was, you know, trial by fire. And I think we, we learned a lot and we grew a lot from that. Okay. You're right. And yeah, yeah to me, it was, uh, it was a good experience. Um, then why, why did you end up leaving Easy Taxi? Because uh, you, you left pretty, uh, like after about a year, right? You were there, then you kind of left. Um, I mean, I, I know it was very hard to to keep up and compete. Um what, where did, what did you end up seeing or thinking at the time? Well, at that point, right, Global was like, okay, uh, no more subsidy, uh, no more <laughs> yeah. bonusing a driver, and no more discount for passengers. So Asia, yeah. um, go survive on your own and uh, make yourself profitable in a year. Yeah. Like when you have, yeah. when yeah. you're in the middle of like a subsidy war and, you know, like uh, you're trying to uh, buy the market, um, and your yeah. competitor just showering um, your driver with more bonuses. There's no and, and passenger with more discount. There's no way that we will win this war. So yeah. at that point, I already knew that the direction that global is gonna uh, is eventually gonna do. Right? You we're saw the writing on the wall. Retreat. Exactly. Um, of course, they don't say it, but you know, it was it was obvious to me. Yeah. So at that point, I knew that there's not gonna be much of a future for Easy Taxi in Southeast Asia. Yeah, so I, I, was, no, I was just thinking, because um, that's when I uh, came over to look at Thailand and uh, exactly what you were saying, this is impossible. I was a little bit more naive. Uh, so there was an impossible task of you know trying to get profitable. And I don't know if you found the same thing in the Thai market, and you've, I guess you've operated in other markets now, but I felt that there was ability to segment the user base way more. And you know we were running... Um, a really ghetto version of using a, an app, like an app for a taxi meter, separately outside the the program, and we were able to get you know quite a bit of cost coverage. You know, we were able to save up to 70 percent of the burn 
Um, so it, it was on the right path. It's just that, you know, they kept burning more money and more market share and we had less, less and less budget. But I don't know, do, do you think that you saw the same kind of economics that were, it would have been possible or you just think it probably didn't matter? It was just a pointless uh, exercise. I think that as long as Grab has uh, that much money um, and Uber yeah. was still there too, but I yeah. would say the chance was like very, very slim. Yeah, if you look at the game, I think if we tried to play that game, it's definitely a losing game. Uh, I, but, you know, I guess the only other thing is that you could even see it today. Now that Grab has a monopoly, you know, try to get good customer service. It's quite hard. I mean, it's not terrible, but it's not really great either. It's not always the best experience where they just try to throw a discount voucher at you every time you have a bad experience because they have so much funding. Um, that, I mean, that's going to be a problem in the future if they don't you know, actually fix the actual problems. But uh, I, I do think there, it's, even though rideshare itself is not as big as probably people think it is in Southeast Asia, it's, I think there's room to have a niche company. This is why you have like certain airport companies still surviving today, right? You know, you could have a niche and it be profitable. It's just not going to be very big probably. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, you saw the writing on the wall. Uh, then, then you ended up going to delivery and inspire ventures, right? Yeah, Nikki, who was also uh, at Easy Taxi before. Yeah, she left uh, Easy Taxi to go to Inspire Venture before me, and she pretty much like um, got me interested and got me talk to Tom, who is the CEO of the Inspire Venture and Delivery, who still is you know running the the companies today, the two companies yeah. today. Um, yeah, and, and she introduced us and I got uh, more and more interested and it was like building, it was like building the company from scratch because yeah. uh, when I joined EC Taxi, um, EC Taxi has been around globally, globally for probably like maybe two, two, three years already. I don't, I don't remember. Um, but yeah. in Thailand, it had already existed for almost a year when I joined. Yeah. But, you know, delivery is like zero. So I was like, mm -hmm. okay, well, you know, um, uh, I, I had a, a short career at Easy Taxi, the first startup building a company that someone else started almost a year ago. But now I have a yeah. chance to start like a new company, new startup um, with someone else's money, you know, start from zero. This is this is gonna be like a great experience if mm, I, I one day want to form my own company. Yeah. Right. So that's why I decided to join Delivery. Yeah. And who who are the people behind Inspire Ventures? So what was their backgrounds? Tom Kim. Uh, he he was an ex Goldman Sachs um, in New York. Uh, so you know investment banking, and then he formed his own fund uh, with. With his, um, with his friends in Vietnam, and I forgot how much how much they managed. I think like something in billions, uh, U.S. Oh um, wow! And he pretty much like I think he exited and he wanted to retire, went to the U.S. Yeah. And it wasn't until like his friend uh, convinced him to come back to Asia and started a VC because you know like. Um, I think back then was still like the hit, the good t days of rocket internet and you know like the interest in South Southeast Asia is starting to uh, grow more and more. We have we as much as people like hate rocket internet, I think they have to give some credit to them for yep. this, right? Yep. Um, yeah, so Tom took a look and you know become interested 
And so he moved out of the U.S. and uh, back to Southeast Asia and started a VC called Inspire Ventures, um, started to make some investments and later on thinking that it had become a, a sales market that, you know, like startups were getting his VC, Inspire Ventures, kept on getting beat on the deals, like very last mm. minute. And he didn't think it would have been a good price for him to pay higher, right? Uh, f- to get into yeah. those deals. So, so then he, he and the partner think that, you know, maybe because of this, uh, sales market, we might as well just incubate and build a startup ourselves. And so yeah. they decided to build. And how, how do you think that venture builder model works out now? Do, do you think it's, like how are they doing performance wise? Do they have any material exits on their horizon soon? Or do you think it's a model that kind of doesn't work as well as much anymore? Cause there's a few other guys who've tried to do it in a region, like the hype guys from the Airbnb guys, right? Um, they, they did a venture model, which I hear they're kind of pivoting to something else. Um, do, you, do you think it's too hard to do this model or do you think it just needs more time? I think having like, um, I, I think like back then people, and maybe even now, People were just yeah. copying like a uh, um, rocket internet kind of model. Like, yeah. you know, a lot of people say that like, hey, uh, rocket internet uh, sucks. But, you know, like a lot of like models really came from that, right? Essentially, that's what True. rocket would do. Finding like a ex-consultant, give him a lot of a responsibility and freedom to run his own company. Um, yeah. A lot of cash to operate. But still, like giving very small percentage, like maybe like one to two percent of the company. Yeah. Now, I think that's where it's kind of difficult because it's not fair to call them founders, but Rocket like <laughs> to use that title, right? Like, yeah. They, true. True. They hire people in to build a company, but they they call them founders when that's not true, you know. But anyway, yeah. the the let's just say the country manager that they hired that they call yeah. them founder. Um, yeah. Having them own like two or three percent maximum doesn't give them that much incentive to like really see this out for long term no. you know like correct you're gonna build like a successful company you it's you really need five to ten years i would think to to build like great companies and you're in it for a long run if you own like two three percent especially if things get tough and doesn't go well you're probably just gonna gonna look for some other opportunities especially like yep. If uh, the the startup that you were building uh, were well funded and have like enough money to do marketing and build visibility, then you're gonna become you know more well known in that market, um, or at least like the startup, the next VC, the next incubator, whatever. Will will probably approach this guy, right? Yeah. I think that's one thing, uh, one downside about this structure where where the yeah. uh, MD doesn't get that much share. Yeah. And is that the same kind of model or structure that Inspire Ventures kind of went for when they were losing out on the deals when they did it? Was it similar to Rocket where there wasn't enough equity on the table for the found, for the quote unquote um, founder? No, when it, when they were losing out on the deals, they were just doing like traditional VC. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't building startups back then. And then when they pivoted though, did they copy the same structure as Rocket? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that, that was probably one of some of some of the flaws possibility in this um, execution of the venture builder model, I guess, for the region. Yeah, could be. Yeah, but I mean, they exited. They exited some companies. Oh, they did. Okay, 
So, uh, which, which probably means the, uh, yeah, it's, it's a question of the quantum and how much money they made and do they think it was worth it, I guess, at the end of the day. Um, so I guess that's up, that's up, you know, for them to tell the story and, and, and you know, people for, for someone else to judge. Well, the, I think the company that they exit though, uh, it's a different structure. It's a, it's a okay. JV, it's a JV model. So they had yeah. a, a, a company, um, from the UK that builds like a kind of a child safe online ad um, yeah. platform. Yeah. Uh, wanted to expand to Southeast Asia and um, Inspire Venture pretty much like dealt like a uh, JV deal. And that worked out yeah. pretty good for them and they were, they were able to exit that, that deal. Okay, so I guess there is some potential hope for this kind of model if you can structure the right deals at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, so you left Easy Taxi and you joined uh, Inspire Ventures, which for the main project that you were building from scratch was called Delivery. A delivery essentially now is a logistics company for all intents and purposes, right? Uh, last mile, mid mile, first mile. They kind of do all kinds of delivery and they operate in Thailand, Indonesia, and Philippines, right? Yep. Um, so yeah, they're, they're like a truck booking app pretty much. Truck booking app. So they also have on demand or, or scheduled. Yeah, exactly. Hey listeners, I hope you enjoyed listening to part one of Natapak's journey. Stay tuned for part two next week. If you enjoyed the content or learned something new, please share this with your friends and family who would benefit and give us a review on your podcasting platform of choice. So what did we learn today? I hope if you're not from the region, you got some insights on Bangkok and communities. For those who are not familiar with Bangkok, Sukhumvit is the largest boulevard that cuts across Bangkok and Asoy is a small alley off the main road. I think Natapak benefited early on by having the privilege to live and study abroad at a young age to break him out of the only context he knew. It is often a very important aspect of personal growth and typically of any entrepreneur's journey where one has to dive into new contexts to achieve this learning and growth to solve harder and harder problems. It's almost ironic, but Natapak also learned a hugely important lesson at AMD about experts not really knowing how to do things, but having the ability to solve the unknown problems to make progress regardless. This is another key facet to building successful startups. I hope that if you're considering entrepreneurship or are already on the journey, that Natapak story shows that there's no one direct path to it. Each experience he learned from and kept building the muscles that allowed him to eventually be successful in launching ventures across Southeast Asia. Maybe you can take some time out of your busy day to reflect what experiences have contributed to your own journey as well. Stay tuned for part two, where Natapak shares an amazing question that will help guide many of your life choices and the most important lesson he learned thus far. See you back here for next week's episode, EOA Out.